Very good. We've warmed us up well. Um, so I guess we'll get it in the way. We're here with the godfather of uh, betting and bookmaking in Australia, Mark Reed. We're at your beautiful property. We're in the Yarra Valley. Um, we drove out here this morning. It was a beautiful drive. Thank you very much for having us out here. My pleasure. Um, you've had a super, super long, distinguished career that's still going in, in the wagering industry. Um, really looking forward to hearing about it. So do you want to take us back? Your, your mum is well known in racing folklore. Mabel Reed, was that her Mabel name? Reed, correct, yes. Yeah, she was one of the biggest punters in she Australia. She was the biggest woman punter in Australian history. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so what was she, what was she, what numbers was she betting? Well, and, we, and what era was this? Is this the 1940s and 50s, was it or something? No, 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 no. Um, she started uh, as with my father in Fitzroy as an SP bookmaker. Yep. Um, in the 50s. Yep. Um, by the time she got to the 60s, she was um, 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 going the races, trying to find a way as a punter. Um, she, um, she had a unique skill in terms of um, not doing the form, but she was very good um, person with uh, people and very good at getting money on. Yeah. How big was she betting in the 1960s? In the 60s, we would take uh, $50,000 to the races with her, with us in cash. Wow, and so you're in the, 19, you're in the 12, 1960s. You're 12 years old or something like this. Um, yeah, I started working for her when I was 14 actually. So what's 50,000 cash back then? Are we going to say it's 5 million now? Or? Well, we're talking in 1966, the average wage in Australia in 66 was $3,000. 1,500 pounds became $3,000. Right. The yeah. average wage in Australia is now $80,000. Yeah. Yeah. So we're talking a factor of um, 30 or something. 17 yeah. uh, more, 18 or yeah. okay. whatever, um, tw oh, 25 actually. Yeah, right? so, <laughs> it was slowly getting there. Yeah, so 25 times 50,000. Yeah, okay, so a bit over, so you've a bit over a million dollars. Yeah, but imagine this, that uh, there were two economies in the world in that stage. There was a racing economy and the other economy, the normal economy. People, the racetrack lived a different economy than the economy of the of the of the of, the, of Australia. Yeah. That is, when taxi drivers came to the races, even though a taxi driver would only earn mm. what, um, uh, say, he, he earned the average wage, which I said was sixty dollars a week, he would bet a hundred dollar bet was nothing for him. Because mm. you had your sort of you had your. Your betting fund and then you had your real life fund, which well, isn't, I don't think that happens as much these days. No, does no, it? it's completely different. Yeah. The racing created a, an economy of its own. Mm. And if you were in the racing and you got, in, you got into the racing, most people got into the racing. In fact, when I was growing up in Fitzroy in the house, I never forget that 3UZ, the racing station, was constantly on going mm. and Bert Bryant was the race caller and Cliff Carey in Sydney was the race caller and Bert Bryant had an audience um, which represented in 1958 25% of the population of Australia. Wow. No one's ever had an audience mm. in the media like it. And so when you went to the races these days, was what the crowds were always 50,000, 60,000 well, people like that? Mooney Valley used to, was full and you should accommodate about 25,000 people. Yeah. But it'd be full every Saturday. Um, and, um, but it didn't get, you know, the races were about 25 to 30,000 people. And you remember the biggest win your mum ever had? Her biggest win was famously on Galilee when it won the 
66 Melbourne Cup. Okay. So Galilee, she had the double, the two Galilees, Caulfield Melbourne Cup. In those days, everybody in Australia and New Zealand took a Caulfield Melbourne Cup double. Everybody. Gave yourself a chance every year. Yeah, it was a big lottery yeah. sort of thing, right? Yeah. So she took the two Galilees because my her husband and my stepfather, Val Red, was a gun judge. Mm-hmm. He was a Dorian attractman of Flemington, recognised as such, right? And he was really um, uh, impressed by this horse of Bart coming forward across from Adelaide, Galilee. She backed it in his first his first start in Melbourne in a uh, Welder race, mm. which he won. Uh, he then went he then went to the Turak handicap, which she he won, and she backed it again. And then he went to the Caulfield Cup, which he won, he won at sixteen to one. Yeah. Because Tobin Bronze dominated the market, a champion late freight horse. He was odds on. He made the market. And then before that all started. She got in early doors and took the, t- the double, the Caulfield Melbourne Cup double, the two Galilees. So would you get 101 or 100? Well, she got massive odds, massive odds. Yeah. And she backed it with Albert Smith, the famous Melbourne bookmaker, who, by the way, was still bookmaking in my time in Melbourne. And Albert had laid a her to lose a quarter of a million dollars in the, the double. Albert rang her to um, to do a trade-off to try and arbitrage the bet to weaken his liability. And she, I remember famously- She wanted to cash out. She said, no cashing out here. Yeah. She said, in fact, I'm gonna put another 20,000 on, on the day, Albert. So get on now. <laughs> so she did that. And we know she did it because um, the celebration in the in the household and all the friends, the whole of Melbourne knew about it, the double, because mm. Albert Smith told the rest of Melbourne, she's got to go up a quarter million. But what they were, then when everyone knows, she then went and put another 20,000 on the races. So she won 370,000 on the race. Well, and how many houses would 370,000 have bought back then? Well, we, we did the mathematics before, we talked about 25 times. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. But the so houses, about, and I think houses might have been. Well, been 10 million, cheaper. well, today, in today's world, it doesn't, it only buys your Turek house, you know, yeah. 10 million. No. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Great. So you obviously had a, a very good grounding in uh, in racing and betting, and you you had no chance but to go into it yourself, really. So when did you get your license? I was besotted by racing and grew up in a racing household. I was even working at the. I was working. <laughs> I had a job even in Fitzroy, running prizes from the from the house up the lane behind the Rainbow Hotel in St David Street. And we put the price up in the lane behind the hotel. So this is all SP stuff. Back SP then. days, yeah. So I had that job when I was about eleven. Mm. By the time I was um, thirteen, I was on the racetrack, and they were tick-tacking the odds out on the hill where my uncle Sid Hill was working mm. as a bookmaker, and we get the what was shortening in the paddock by tick-tack, and I had to run the prices from the tick-tackers to him. So I, then I worked for my mother when I was 14. And so when, you, and when you're in your teenage years, were you like, I'm becoming a bookie, I'm becoming one of the biggest players? I was always going to be a bookmaker. But were you always focused on, I want to dominate this game, I want to become one of the biggest bookies in, in Australia, or were you just fighting? Well, I role? came out of, this, um, out of this environment where, you know, the idea was there's nothing we couldn't do with the success my mother had as a female in those days. I mean, she wasn't allowed in the members. She had to do all the bet, betting from the outside. <laughs> Women were not allowed in the, in the members. And that was a great thing, that was a great advantage for her, 
because she can get on. Because yeah. the men, because of the arrogance of men against women in those days were such, nothing much has changed, some has, but the arrogance was that if you were not prepared to take on a woman, what kind of man were you? What kind of bookmaker were you? Yeah. So what she used to get fantastic information and she used to always, she was a, a, a really good bowler as we use the modern yep. term of bowler right. to get the money down. Yep. So when she'd approach a bookmaker and say in those days, I want 4,000, 6,000 or 4,000, there's no way the bookmaker would knock it back because yeah. she's a woman. Yeah. But if yeah. a bloke came up, he'd probably yeah. say you have a thousand on it. So she was a very effective commission agent. Mm. Therefore, she got all the right information. In those days, it wasn't what you knew, it was who you knew. And were you paying any attention at school or were you just at the school? I had 300. When Galilee won the Melbourne Cup, I had 300 on it myself. And how old were you then? I was 16. 16, so right. So a couple of 300, thousand. I won a couple of thousand. You know, two thirds of the average wage of Australia in today's money, two thirds of 80, you know, yeah. two thirds is 50 grand. So you're on your way. So, and when did you actually, did you first get your bookmaker's license in Victoria? Yeah, Victoria, on the 21st birthday, I went 21st. straight in there. Yep. Did you have, have to be 21? You have to be 21. Yeah. And I got the license on the 21st birthday. The first day I operated was at Werribee on the third row. Imagine a Saturday meeting, a provincial meeting, and they needed, I was on the third row, there were four rows plus the rails. The rails had 25 bookmakers. This is 1971. This is 1971. Yeah. And I was on the third row and I, I had run, I had, since I applied for a license and qualified to get a license, I had a bad trot. Yeah. I'd run out of money. I had nothing. Right. So I had to borrow $500 from my mother that day to stand up. Right. So you, it was all your own bank. She never, she never gave you that yet. She gave me the 500 to go. Yeah, I, let, I borrowed of her that first day. Yep. And I wore my own bag. I had the best suit on the, I wore the best suit. I had a, a gold watch worth, uh, in today's money, better than a Rolex, a Piaget with a specially made, handmade gold band from the good days. You swear I had no money. I bought 18. One, yeah. And um, I had the best suit. I wore a, I, I was, you can see it now, I had a grey suit with a purple, a purple um, mauve pinstripe through it and a purple tie. I look beautiful. <laughs> and long hair, beautiful long hair. I had the longest hair of any bookmaker in Melbourne. So your bag stack was 500. What did you do on the first, how, how much were you laying for in the first race? After the first three races, I uh, first three races, I had won enough money to grab a guy off the ground and say, put this bag on. And, right, so that's how you got it. And then he, wore, he wore the bag <laughs> and I won the first day because I, I, I finished the day and I was... Do you remember how much you won at the end of the day? I can't you? remember what I won, but I, I think I more than doubled the money. Okay, so yeah, now you got, you're up to a thousand. And so, so this is 1971, so it took you, a, how long did it take you to go up to move up to Sydney? I tell you, before we go to Sydney, well, yeah. it only took me, only took me a year before I got promoted to the hill of Flemington. Yep. One year on the hill of Flemington, there used to be on the hill of Flemington, the outside enclosure, there are 80 bookmakers on the hill. Wow, that's not even the right. And then yeah. I topped the holdings on the hill, and then... And how did you work out your clientele then? Like what, what? It was all cash. Right, so there's all no... Cash. Right. on the hill. But did you have regular clients or was it just cash? All cash, yeah, well, I was yeah. always the best odds. Yeah. So on the hill, I was a young, aggressive nutcase. Were you doing the form then? Or were you oh just, yeah, 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 big time. Yeah. And my stepfather was my mentor. 
Yeah. And uh, he taught me how to do the form. I go the track with him all through my teenage years, clocked the horses with him and understood section all times. We used to do comments, video comments, they're called now. There were no videos. Mm. We had to watch the races live and my comments on the horses after watching them live. Mm. He would hand time with a friend of his, they had hand time all the sections. Mm. We were doing things that no one did. And, you, and you that was his book. You got the book, the original way you did the form, you showed it to us earlier. We'll take some footage of it and we'll put it in the, in the video because it's, it's, yeah. it's pretty awesome the way. We were that far like, ahead of, um, because of that mentorship. Yeah, what was his name, your stepfather? Lal Reed, yeah. and he spelled R-E-E-D. Yeah. Uh, his father in terms was a big punter from um, Ascot Vale. Yeah. And he was a jockey, Lal, but couldn't ride to save himself. The only person to put him on was his father. But he was a great, he grew up in the same stables as Scobie Breezley. Okay. And they were great mates. And Scobie Breezley would come, when he visited Australia from England, and May, his wife, they'd always come to our place for lunch every time they come into Australia. Mm. And he told great stories, great person. So did you make it to the rails in Melbourne? But I made it to the rails, the youngest bookmaker ever on the rails at Flemington, yep. at 24. Wow. Only three years. And what's, what? I spent one year in the paddock, then I, I ran in the paddock, I ran seventh in the total turnover turn bookmaker on the track. And what then, did you turn, so your $500 bank that you borrowed off your mum, what did you turn that into now? What, when you I got, roughly by the time was? four years on, by the time I got to the rails, I had $700,000. Wow. Right? Yeah. That's quick money. Yeah. I was, I thought I was invincible. Yeah. I thought I was, I thought I just, where's this going to win? I just thought, Money was just that easy, yeah. um, how easy this game, but what I didn't realise was being off the rails, I could see what was, what was being backed. I had control over the book that if the horses that were going to be backed and shortening, I could shorten them and not lay them, and I, could, I was safe, there was safety in being off the rails. Mm. But when I got on the rails, it only took me, only took eight months on the rails, and the 700,000 was gone. Wow. Broke. <laughs> and any bookmaker who says he hasn't gone broke is telling you a lie or he's a hack bookmaker. Yes. Because only by going broke can you learn how mm -hmm. to survive and how to, how to govern your money, mm -hmm. govern your risk. So Okay, so you're on the rails and you're 24 and you're broke. Yeah. So what happens next? Well, you, what was the change in approach? Well, I remember it's, it's uh, Christmas Day and we're at um, my, my mother's brother's house, City Hill, a rails bookmaker, mm -hmm. for long-term long rails bookmaker. And uh, we're having lunch and I've got to approach Shari and I um, have, uh, living in, in uh, Sully Park in Kew in, in Melbourne and uh, we've got, we haven't got time to sell the house. And I've approached them and uh, mother and City pulled them aside and said, guys, you've got to lend me $20,000 because I can't get up and work on Boxing Day, I've got no money. So they sent me out the room where all the families congregated for lunch and they call me back in in about 20 minutes time and they tell me the bad news. And the bad news is, you're only going to give me $3,000. <laughs> $3,000, did I blow up? I blew up like you can't believe. What am I going to do with $3,000? i have just lost $700,000 and I have got $3,000. They said, you've got to learn how to really graft it. Yeah. So, so you're almost back to square one. And I, that taught me how to be a trader. So yeah. I, had to, I had to lay horses on the rails and give clients a reasonable bet. 
and then immediately back them back. Yeah. So I limit my liability. So when you're yeah, laying them at six to one and back and back. Laying them back, okay, lay them and I had to get the money back. If the smart money came, I had to back them back straight away. I had to had to just graft it, graft it, graft it, graft it. Yeah. It didn't take long. Yeah. I learned a lot. Yeah. And by the time I by the time I got the twenty-six, I was a lean bookmaker on the rails of Flemington. Right to so your back and then the highest turnover. And then Kerry Packer arrived. Yep. So what, what, so what year are we now? We're talking 78. 78, okay. Right. Kerry arrives. Yeah. And Kerry... Um, Was this for Melbourne Cup Carnival? Melbourne Cup Carnival. He only yeah. came to the Carnivals. And I didn't, I didn't know Kerry, but I was a leading bookmaker and I was young. So, so two, years, two years earlier, you, you stone yeah. broke. Yeah. Two years later, Packer's there and you're ready to go. You're ready to take him on. Well, exactly. Yeah. And basically... So what was your bank at there? The great, the great story is that... That, um, that when we bet with one another, and over that week, he lost, um, what was it, um, he lost half a million dollars, right? Yeah. And, um, and what was and his, each bet, what was he having like? Oh, he was betting in 10,000, 10,000, 20,000, right? So betting with sort of 50 to 100,000 every time, is that how it would work? No, no, he was, um, he was betting 10 or 20,000, he backed favourites, right. Gary. So he wouldn't, he wouldn't have 10,000 on a $10 he used, he used to bet, yeah, yeah, he would. Because he used to have a, he used in those days he had no tips, and he had his own he had his own method. He used to back the last start winner. Okay. And he was just he used to be betting SP as well. Yeah. So he used to bet, and the money would come to the track. I used to the money would come onto the track. The SP bookmakers would take his bets, and the money would come to the track, and the, the bookmakers who took his bets were trying to short them on the track. And I I had I knew that was going on. Then Kerry arrives. Um, so he actually came to the track and, and started betting with you physically. Yeah. Yeah. And and basically that was our first engagement. Yeah. And um, and then the funny story was he couldn't pay and neither could I. <laughs> so none, none of us were thinking in terms of a half a million. Yeah. Over a week. So he lost half a million to you in a week. Yeah. Over the Melbourne Cup Carnival. And then right. I, I had back all these horses back. Yeah. So you, you had to. And you, I had I had all the ring all this money I bet back, but Kerry said to me. Mate, he said, um, we have to wait for this money and um, I'll have to see what I can do and get arrange money. Because in those days, Ke- Kerry's father was still in charge. Yeah, Frank Parker, Ke- yeah. Yeah, and Kerry wasn't, didn't have access to money, really. You know? So what was Kerry, well, Kerry would have been like 30s or something then, would he? Uh, how much older is Kerry than I? I'm trying to think, um, I'm 15 years older, yeah. So Kerry would have been about, um, I would say 26, he would have been about 41. Yeah, yeah. 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 But and then all of a sudden, Kerry, Kerry was always a gambler. He played, you know. Yeah. So was that was that sort of a significant part of really getting you going, winning that? Well, I tell you what, I had to do. This is apparently part of the story. I had to find a bank manager that would lend me the money so I could pay out the bookies. How much did you have to pay out the ring? I, I, I found a bank manager who unsecured lent me a quarter of a million dollars. Yeah. So Packer lost five hundred. You held on to about two hundred fifty of it, roughly. Yeah. 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 Right. So then. And then we're sort of getting closer to the Sydney, moving to Sydney, but when did the getting closer story happen? Well, getting closer came because we had to move. The decision was I made and, <laughs> and Shari was forced into, but she was a willing, a willing companion. Um, was your wife, Shari? Yeah. yeah. Shari's father, Shari's had a racing family too, a very yeah. strong family. Her father is Jack Elliott, the famous... Um, racing writer in Melbourne, yeah. a 30 years editor, racing editor of the, of the Melbourne Herald, right? He was just a, a legend, mm. Jack. 
And um, so basically, my stepfather actually worked for, well, uh, they'll read, he worked for Jack um, and giving all the track work to the papers, you know. And basically, so we were living this um, very fast sort of rock style lifestyle in Melbourne. And then we said, well, what's the next, next challenge, you know? We've climbed Kosciuszko. What about Everest? Let's have a crack at that. What yeah. about Sydney? Yeah. And we were infatuated with Sydney because we used to go to Sydney on all the big carnivals in Sydney and used to go to those uh, nightclubs that run run by, you know, they used to have nightclubs and, and, and gambling um, places. Up at the cross, yeah. At the cross or at, at uh, um, Bondi Junction, you know, and all those personalities were involved and all these girls were dressed up like queens, beautiful princesses, would, would uh, deal you the cards and then they send you home with a bodyguard afterwards and you had um, you had the likes of um, Bruce Scalia, Bruce yeah, Lee, Hollywood was, George. Holly, but there was uh, Hollywood George would always be around. Hollywood, I knew Hollywood George before I went to Sydney because yeah. he would ring my Hollywood George Edson would ring my Lal. He was a friend of Lal's, my stepfather, and he would ring every Saturday for his tips. Mm. So I knew Hollywood George, and this is a good story. I met Hollywood George. He came for lunch at our place in Footscray. And, um, and this guy walks in the room, and I was about 15 at the time, and in walks this bloody film star, this guy, that's, no, it was called, that's why it was called Hollywood George. He looked like a film star. He was six foot two, six foot three. Um, he was dressed and he walked in, and the first thing I noticed, he was wearing white shoes. I never saw anyone in Melbourne ever before wear white shoes, yeah. right? So I'm looking at his shoe. I mean, anyone wears white shoes today, but in that time, no one wore white shoes. So that was a big, I said, look at this guy here. He comes in, wow, don't want, Hollywood George is in the papers all the time. I said, no, I know why he's called Hollywood. He walks yeah. in. But the biggest thing that got me was when he sat down for lunch and I looked at his fingernails and his fingernails were painted. Wow, that is. And all the men in Sydney, Nobody. all the men in Sydney in those days, would have their hair cut once a week in the racing guys. They would get a haircut every week and a shave, a full shave by a barber, a haircut, and have all their nails buffed. Now that's what all the men in the Tony Sweeney, um, uh, John Rogan, uh, George Ed, uh, Hollywood George, uh, George Freeman, all the guys, yeah. everyone. They all looked like I looked at these guys and said, they're all kidding too. Yeah. You know? yeah. But what happens? When you're up in, when you sit up there in Sydney, eventually you start to get like them, you know? Yeah. You got it. Yeah. So when did you actually move to Sydney? So moved to Sydney in 1980. 1980. I was 30, Shari was 28. And did you go straight onto the rails there? Yeah, straight onto the rails because Jack Elliott, Shari's father, had a lot of influence in Sydney. Yeah. And we were very friendly with Jim Comins, who was on the committee of the AJC. Mm. And Jim Comins was in charge of the bookmaking subcommittee. Mm -hmm. So, of course, coming out of Melbourne, I'd broken every record in Melbourne. Yeah. So they saw, the, the AJC saw as a great big trump card over, over, um, over Melbourne. Mm. It's like the Landys does to Melbourne now. Mm. Think about yeah. it. Yeah. Bloody Landys is always doing one-upmanship, you know? Yeah. But um, I'm not saying that anyone's as, as bad as the Landys, but that's the way it was. Yeah. I'm not a fan of Landys, by the way. <laughs> but anyway, that's, that's not the point. The issue was the... Um, the, uh, so we went to Sydney, first day on the rails at um, Ranwick. I've got a, a very good stand in the middle of the rails, right? Which is really good. 
And on one side, I've got Robbie Waterhouse, yeah. the new emerging prince of bookmaking. Yeah. And Robbie's about, what is he, two years younger than I am or something mm. like that, two or three mm. years perhaps. And so he's the youngest bookmaker on the rails. Mm. I'm still the second youngest, so I'm mm. 30. And on the other side, I've got one of my heroes, Ray Hopkins. Yes. Ray Hopkins is the greatest gambler I've ever seen in Australia in, in my time. Yeah. And Ray, a bit bigger than him, right? He was... No, nah, he was the biggest, and he was yeah. the fe most fearless, but the nicest person. Yeah, still, still alive. In, He's in still alive, there. Ray, and uh, he was always my one of my heroes. And I get up, and this was my baptism in Sydney racing. So I'm next to Ray, first race, and I'm watching Ray, and he takes about 30 grand out of one horse a favour in the race. That's all he does. Right? 30 grand back in those days, a bit of money, yeah. right? So that's all he, he doesn't lay another horse. <laughs> that's cool. So when he gets off the stand, he comes past me and he says, Mark, I'll back one, two, three, I'll back three horses, you back three horses with me, all to beat the favourite. And I said, oh God, I'm finished here. Mm. He's got to have the favourite in the bag, you know? And what happened? Right? Favourite one. Yeah, right. <laughs> so <laughs> that time there was something must have gone wrong. Yeah. Right? But that was Ray. So did he? Control? He was the biggest gambler I've, I've encountered, you know. And was he the sharpest in the ring when you were there? Was he? He was. I would suggest he was the best informed. Yeah. And he believed in quality information, and he was very well connected with Horry Gollum at Rose Hill. Rose Hill. He was a Dordogne of trackmen. Mm. I always believed in trackmen because of my upbringing too. Mm. So they were watching the horse on the track, seeing their condition. They understood the horse. They under how they understood timing. All that stuff wasn't in the public domain in those days. Mm. So anyone, in my view, worth their salt. I used to employ trackmen everywhere. Mm -hmm. I mean, in our business model, the overheads were very big because you employed a lot of people because you needed to know the inside information mm. in those days. Because mm. inside, and you had to be on, to be a good putter, mm. I had the view, you had to, had to be, um, you were confined, that you had to be in a certain camp who'd have a, a group of trainers and jockeys that you get access to their information, mm. which was normally the case, mm. or you could be a bookmaker and then judge what was fancied by the money trail coming to you on the, on the stock. So being a punter on the, as a bookmaker on the rails was a big advantage in my view, mm. because you could, you could read the money. Mm. You, knew, you knew if things were fancied or not, because the money flow was coming through you. you know? Yeah, it is. You could join in. You call it the trade, don't you? The trade where you... Trading, that was the idea. Yeah. So we, they all said, I remember Bill Waterhouse said to me when we first arrived there, he invited me to his house and I was invited to the, the second, the, the up, I was invited to his house for the special party for, for, the, for the high class people. Right. It didn't include me in the, the, the vagabonds that came to the first party. There were always two pays at Bill's house. A yearly party, one for the racing vagabonds, uh -huh. and one for the politicians and the and the um, the elite. And you got to, you went to the elite. Level. I was I was invited to the elite because right. I I was a bit of a mystery, and they yeah. um, you know they. What did they say? And he knew, keep your friends close, keep your enemies even closer. Bill knew my mother. He knew a lot of Melbourne people. And when I came to Sydney, when I did come to Sydney, I was well protected. My my my. One of the people that looked after me very closely was Melbourne Mick Bartley. Oh yeah. Because he was best mates with my father, my real father. Yes. 
My father and mother were divorced when I was about 13. Yeah. But my father was a bookmaker as well, but not an you know, SP bookmaker, but also an on-track bookmaker, but only in the other enclosures. But he, in his SP days, was very closely connected as a commission agent for, for um, Mick Bartley. And Mel, Mick Bartley was Melbourne Mick because he came from Melbourne, went to Sydney, took Sydney by storm. Mm. He came from Melbourne and within two or three years became the biggest bookmaker, SP bookmaker in Sydney. Mm. And Melbourne Mick was a great storyteller, one of the, one of the, another mentor of mine, mm. and, and also so influential in Sydney. Mm. So to give you an idea, um, <laughs> his influence, um, George Freeman's first real job was with Mick Bartley. Right. Right? Yeah. And he was sent to Mick Bartley because when Mick Bartley arrived in Sydney and took control, uh, did SP so did the SP business so well that um, that he um, he was told that he should get a um, a minor, a bodyguard, because you know you're an SP bookmaker, yeah. a legal operator, and your your you know money will be attracted to you, and someone's going to. To, you know, hold you up or whatever. So most got a lot of guys in Melbourne, in Sydney. When I came to Sydney, they had bodyguards. Mm. I never saw anything like that. Mm. You know, I never had a bodyguard. Mm. I never got threatened anyway. But I had Mick Bartley. Yeah, and so George Freeman was Mick Bartley's bodyguard. No, well, he was sent there to be a bodyguard, and 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 he wouldn't pay the wage for a bodyguard, um, Mick. But he was sent there by the guy who um, his name just escapes my. Um, just escapes me right now, I shouldn't know it, will come to me. But he was the, the guy who operated the casinos in the cross. He was the head of, he was bigger than the Galeas. He was the main man for organising illegal gambling in the, in the, in the casinos. Right. And he, he was, he's a big racehorse owner on Punter as well. Uh-huh. Back in the day, we're talking the 60s and that. And, um, and they all loved, everyone loved Mick Bartley. Everyone yeah. loved him. So why did you So he said, he said, Mick, you've got to get a bodyguard. And, and he said, I'm going to send you a, bloke who work, a young bloke who's working for me. So what, what, did, um, what, did George, what did Mick do? Mick said, no, no, you're not going to be a bodyguard. I'll teach you to be a, you're going to be a commission agent and I'll teach you how to be the, go to places to back these horses back and you can be um, working in the office. That's what George Freeman did. You can work, yeah, yeah. George Freeman, and you can work in the office with, guess who? Cole Tidy. Ah. Cole Tidy was, um, Mick Bart worked Cole Tidy with Mick Bartley for years. Right. Before going out on the track and becoming. And why did you guys choose to go to the track and become legal bookies as opposed to being SP bookies? What was the advantage of being at the track? Well, it was legal. Sure. So you some people don't didn't do that. Jail, yeah. I remember. I remember the time Alan Tripp was a great example, right? Alan Tripp. I said Alan. He was um, younger than me. He used to come to our place at, at the farm, we, our first farm. Back in the 70s, you come up for lunch, we were all friendly, but all the kids, but Matthew and all the kids grew up in our house, right? Mm. And I used to mentor them about what they should do. At that time, Alan was doing, um, um, doing a trucking business, but SP on the side. But he really wanted to be an SP bookmaker. I said, mm. Alan, you've got to stop being an SP. Time, SP is not going to last. You've got mm. to get legal. But Alan never wanted to be legal. He liked being an SP. Mm. So eventually, he had to do a run-up to Vanuatu, mm. and then set up Sportsbet. He, he yeah. set up. He, well, he didn't set up Sportsbet. He came back. He came back, and they um, uh, he sold his business to 
to um, Sporting Bet. Yes. And yes. then they became. But it was the genesis of Sports Bet, wasn't it? Like what he yeah. started eventually is now well, Bet is today. Well, well, what they started really, what Sports Bet is today is Paddy Power yeah. that used that name. Yeah. And Paddy Power put the deal together. They bought the deal was uh, I was in the deal for, on behalf of IAS that we put we bought IAS, but Paddy Power wanted to use the private company because the constraints in the public company, they could do more things. So the, uh, the way it all worked is that they got, um, they, Paddy Power bought um, both IAS and Sportsbet. Mm -hmm. They then said, Sportsbet, you take out IAS and then we'll put it together and use it. Because they wanted that brand, the Sportsbet brand. They like that name, yeah. The name, the brand was so important. Yeah. The brand name for, now it was an online business, yeah. was so important. Yeah. But at the time of that was happening, um, Alan, Alan and Matthew's business, they were doing most of their business by phone still, they were yes. traditional, yes. and they just branched out into internet betting in the, last, in the previous couple of years. Yeah, yeah. What, what sports bet today is completely different from what it was 20 years ago. So. Sports bet, I sold it to, we sold it to them oh, 10 years ago, 12 years ago now. Yeah. And um, basically, but most of my people still work at the senior level, senior trader, CFO, um, and, uh, CTO, and people, most of them are my people still there. Yeah, great. And so just going back to the Sydney days, there's three things that I think happened in the Sydney years that I think are great or very interesting. The getting closer story, which is probably the biggest plunge in, in betting history. And also two other things I'm interested to hear about is when you, you owned the pub, the Reed Raiders. Yeah. which is actually just across the road from where the Wolf Den is, where we all work. And then you also, you, you bought Boomerang, which was one of the most expensive houses in Sydney, um, right down on the water at, is it? Elizabeth Bay. Elizabeth Bay, yeah. So when, when was the getting close? Was getting closer before or after Boomerang? Um, getting closer came after Boom, um, getting closer came um, before Boomerang, of course. Yeah. Before. Did getting closer help pay for Boomerang? I did. Hang on. I thought I think now. Um, getting close to 82. No, no. Um, getting close was after Boomerang. Okay. I'll tell you so the sequence. Yeah. Okay. The sequence is this. That we go to Sydney um, and basically we, we, take, we take a house in, um, um, in um, Rose Bay um, and then uh, as, a, as a higher house, as a... Um, and then we basically lay out a plan of what we need to do now. And basically I, I get my feeling in Sydney that to establish a business here, you have to be seen to be a big shot. Uh -huh. I use this term big shot. This, our bar at the hotel you mentioned, the big bar where everyone used to come and bet, with all wall-to-wall -wall screens which no one else had. And we used to do the highest turnover of any TAB in the whole of New South Wales in the pub. Mm. And it was called Big Shots. That, that was called Big Shots, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, because right. Big Shot, um, it's like Billy Joel's song. You had to be a big shot, big shot. That was, uh, I used to always call my son so, and the it was Big on Shot. Wentworth Avenue in the city, is that Wentworth Street or something? Is that where it was? Well, the, the, the Reed Raiders Hotel. Yeah. It was the old um, um, Harpoon Harry's. Yeah, it's Harpoon Harry's now. Harpoon we go there for Harry's. lunch all the time. It was running as yeah. a lunch. Restaurant, yeah. and I turned into. Oh, it's, a, it was called Harpin Harris back in the day. Yeah, it's it's called Harpin Harris now. Yeah, of course. I bought yeah. I bought the site. Yeah, Harpin Harris is in the in the um in the in the in the brickwork, right? Yeah, and it was a very famous restaurant, fish restaurant. Yep, and hotel situation together. And I bought that site with a view 
that I was close to Chinatown mm. and I wanted to turn into a casino kind of pub but focus on, on wagering mm. and we had four terminals there, every other hotel had one or two and um, we did the biggest turnover of any place but we also had read rating screens everywhere. Mm. So I, I'd done a, um, a deal with Kerry Packer who used to own Sky Channel and he had, he had um, uh, satellite television throughout Australia. So I put all the screen, all the um, real-time screen information on screen sent by satellite to um, how many pubs do we have? We had um, uh, 500 pubs around Australia mm. in the early 90s. So taking the read rated, rated tips. Yeah. And I called the hotel the read rated pub. So everyone were getting the tips for first, previous years and they'd come to the pub and bet there. Oh, we had Kerry Packer there. Yeah. We had, Kerry Packer came twice to the pub to bet, <laughs> in the pub, in the environment. He walked in there with Jamie one day with his girlfriend, he had the, the actress. Kate uh, Fisher. Uh, Flavian, uh, uh, she's an American actress. Oh, okay. yeah. That caused a storm, stopped all the betting. <laughs> but, um, but basically, um, yeah, so that was, but going back to the um, development of um, buying the house boomerang, um, we said, okay, we need to establish ourselves in some way and get, get some really good understanding of um, establishing yourself in this, the way that people in Sydney think. So I said, the best way of doing this is to buy an iconic house. On the market comes Boomerang. And Boomerang was built, um, was built by the, uh, um, the famous um, Songbook family. Um, and they, they created this house they built and hadn't been inhabited for 25 years. Right. Um, and so basically... So it was virtually derelict. Yeah, so the same family, the guy that produced ACDC and, and um, all the famous rock bands, his grandfather built this empire, built around song books and song things. He, uh, they, they, um, and basically, we, that house came on auction. Um, it had been bought by another person from the family. The other person had had an accident um, and, and got, was killed in a car accident. And then it came on the market and I said, um, I need to buy this house. And, but I only had about half a million to spend on the house. And I knew the house was going to build, bring about three million. Mm. In fact, it was, they said the price would be between, oh right, between two and a half and three million, which would make it the most expensive house ever sold at auction yeah. in Sydney. So, in today's so terms, when I went and saw the house, and it's the a fifty property, million dollar house in today's terms, just to put perspective to it, yeah, fifty million now, yeah, yeah, and uh, and I fell in love with the house, the idea, the romance of the house, the architecture. Um, it was, um, you know, it was old school, but the, the materials used inside the house were unbelievable, mm. um, and so we had to restore the whole place. So I remember bringing in a, a specialist guy. But how, did you, how did you pay for it? You borrowed money off the bank, did you? Put well, this is the idea. The Australia, there's a new bank starting up called the Australia Bank. Yeah. And the Australia Bank was run by a client of mine and um, he, um, he was the CEO of the bank and I went to him with this pitch. I said, you guys need publicity and I'm looking for publicity too. And we can do what I want to do. I've got half a million dollars and I believe the house is going to bring two and a half million and I want to borrow the extra other two million. Um, but what we'll get is national coverage 
and you're launching this bank, and this you can get up there and yeah. and um, and sell this idea that you being the finance of this bank, okay? And um, he bought he bought this uh, he bought this um, the pitch the pitch yeah, and he financed the house yeah. And when do, you remember, went, what, do you remember what he paid for it? Yeah, he paid two point eight five. Two point eight at an auction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then um, and basically and then after that, getting closer came along. Yep. And getting closer, one of your first start uh, in the big plunge, where I see him up in Melbourne, took him to Sydney. He was uh, in for the big day of the year, New Year's Day. Mm. On New Year's Day, there was more race meetings in Australia than anywhere, any day of the year. Which meant so you could get on every my, Exactly. And my, my real ability in the days in the 70s and that time was logistics. Yeah. Just like my father, he was a commission agent getting money down, I knew how to get money down. Yeah. I knew how to get money down SP, I knew how to get money down on tracks, yes. I had a network Australia wide. So when you said you were set, he was setting it up in Melbourne, what he just what happened in Melbourne, he just had a run or did he or what was he had, Well we didn't know, we didn't know it was any good. Because yeah. what happened, we, I had this private trainer, Henry Davis, yeah. a gun trainer from Queensland, leading trainer who I brought to Melbourne on contract. Yeah. And when he came on contract, he brought all his riding staff with him. I paid for them all. And the, the idea we had was that we, the business model we had was that we were going to buy well-bred horses, good types, in, principally in New Zealand, and we were going to set these horses up to win maidens. And we didn't care about winning. We weren't worried about prize money or group races. We all focused on the betting angle, and Henry was a man. I rang up McDipman, who used to ride for Henry in Queensland. McDipman was his stable jockey, but also McDipman, Henry had no PR skills at all. Mm. The only person, the only things he ever spoke to was really the horses, and um, he had to speak to, he didn't like to speak to anybody, really. Anyway, that was good, because McDipman, I rang up and said, Mick, this guy, uh, Henry Davis, what do you think? He said, oh, man, he's a, one of the best trainers. He's, he's a gun trainer. But he said, he's got no, he can't sell it. I do all the, the organisation for him. I get all the owners. I ran them all up, you know. And he said, but he'd be perfect for you. And he said, I, and he said, I said, well, why? Why would he be perfect? He said, well, what happens? This is the sort of person he is. On Friday nights, before race day, he won't sleep with his wife. <laughs> in case he talks in his sleep. Yeah, yeah. So he says, perfect for you. He won't let anyone else know. <laughs> he'll be faithful yeah. and he'll be able to put a lid on everything around the stable. What do you want to do, you know? So getting closer, it was it was the first start, was it, when you had a big plunge? Um, no. He was, um, he, so we had enormous success before getting closer. Mm, getting yeah. closer wasn't a, wasn't a one-off. Uh-huh. We pulled off something like over a period of three years, we pull off 16 big plunges. Yeah. 16, five a year. Yeah, so you're really, you're really able now, you've, you've got a lot of money and you really... Well, what happens here, getting closer comes up. You know, we've got these plunges and Henry was producing all these things in Maidens. Yes. First time out, first start. But then all the, all the trainers, all the bookies around Australia said, no, 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 yeah. no, 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 no. I said, no, Henry, no more first starters. From now on, the way we're gonna train them if we can, it's just don't even educate the horses. Just put them through. They only go even time. They don't do barrier trials. They go into the races and we progress them as they very slowly through. 
get a bit of get a bit of bad form behind them, and then we'll get them ready. Yeah. Getting closer, he goes for his first start. He'd never been to the barriers. <laughs> he he been just did one jump out. He'd um, he'd never gone better than fifteen to the furlong. Mm. We didn't know he could run or not. No one knew. Mm. He went to Warrnambool his first start in a maiden. He just followed the others around and last. We said, oh, you, you know, there's nothing we say was going to happen here. Then after that, we go to um, Sandown, we put Greg Hall in. Greg Hall's our, 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 our um, stable jockey. Mm -hmm. He just rode for us, basically. If we, he was our stable jockey because he was going out with Henry's daughter. Right? And we put Greg on the straight and narrow. You work for us, you've got to be the first day of track work. All our track work is done in the dark. We always have first use of the grass at Pemberton. Mm -hmm. We also, um, this was the way Henry trained. He, they all thought he was mad. So when he used to swim the horses, everyone used to swim the horses for um, three minutes. Henry would put them in for six minutes, double. Right? So they all thought, and I remember Tommy Hughes rang me, so he used to swim in the Melbourne River. Tommy Hughes rang me up, the famous Melbourne Flemington trainer, and he said, I was in Sydney, and Tommy said, Mark, Mark, this bloke from Queensland, he is nuts, he's mad. <laughs> he, he went through his mad. He was mad, actually. <laughs> and he's, he said, he's going to drown all your horse in that, in that river. They're going to drown. <laughs> anyway, that's the way it was. And, um, but all of a sudden, a year, two years later, or a year and a half later, the race club is forced to put a swimming pool on the racetrack, not in the river anymore. And guess what? Everyone's swimming at the same time as Henry. Yeah. Right? So guess Henry Davis trained John Sides. Ah, that was right? John Sides' mentor. Okay. Same, John Sides. We'll yeah. all be mentored. Yeah. You, to be successful in any enterprise you do, yep. especially in racing, you've got to be lucky enough to get the mentors. Mm. Mm. I've had the best mentors all my life. You can't mm. believe it. Don't, mm. I'm no genius, I can tell you. Mm. I've just been well mentored all the way through. Mm. I've, had, I've had privileged upbringing, right? Mm. So basically, that, so when we get to getting closer, no more first up, eventually he comes through. Oh, he runs, he runs at Sandown with Greg Hall. Greg Hall says, oh, you know, he might win a maiden if we barrier trial and get him fit, you know. There's something there, but nothing much. So we put him in a barrier trial. And there's a horse from New Zealand um, owned um, by one of Henry's, um, Henry's uh, clients in Queensland. We let in the stable and he brought him out of Queensland, a group horse, he brought him to Melbourne and we barrier tried him down the straight. We, we knew exactly what was required to test a horse for all classes down the straight. Mm -hmm. And we put him down the straight and this, our horse getting closer with Michael Fraser riding it, Michael mm -hmm. Fraser on the TV guy, mm -hmm. he was our track jockey. Yeah. Our main track jockey. He was also uh, Mick Dittman's major track jockey. Uh -huh. right? Mick Dittman, just an aside, up in Queensland, used to have himself as a teenager, he controlled Brisbane. So in the track work, he had three guys working for him, riding track work so no one could get on them. Right. And they're all good riders, all yeah. top riders. Yeah. They were better riders than the jockeys themselves. Yeah. And they were heavy. And they were better for horses riding. So all we, we had all these guys on our, on our staff in Melbourne. So, um, so and Michael, Michael Fraser, everyone knows him, he's on TV and that sort of thing. And Michael had a big opinion of himself, you know, you know and rightly so, uh, as a judge, you know. So Michael said, he rode him in the track gallop, and it beats his horse in track, just a, uh, track um, 
the horse in my New Zealand. So what do I do? This horse in New Zealand's got to run in a Caulfield in two weeks' time, and he goes up two to one favourite. So, not to be too obvious, I get four bookies to lay it for me because it can't possibly win because we just got this thing who we've got no opinion that we don't know yeah. can run beats it easy in the in the track mm. giving up weight. Mm. So what does track this horse do from New Zealand? Comes out, goes from two to one to um, three, what seven to two in the betting, of course, and wins by two lengths. <laughs> I do my money. <laughs> so we buried trial again. We can't believe what we see. Yeah. So we buried trial again. Same thing. Greg Hall on the New Zealand horse. Um, we, he's carrying an extra ten pound with uh, Michael Fraser on, on getting closer. And this time they don't go head and head. Getting closer just missing. So you're, you're I say, oh, well, I'm here watching it. I'm, I've flown to I've flown from Melbourne to for the barrier trial in, down the straight. I fly from Sydney to see all this stuff. I used to go to the track. I used to fly from Sydney every fast morning Tuesday and do the track just to see it. Yeah. That's what I do. Yeah. yeah. So then, and then um, uh, we take it to Queen, we take it to Sydney. We go for the big day, New Year's Day. What happens? We get battled out. You know, what can these forms no good? We get battled out New Year's Day at Randwick. But guess what happens? And luck, luck, luck. Or can I hate? Can I deal with some luck, please? A horse called Dalmacia wins the race by four lengths. The race we were going to go for. Yeah, and it was a real good Dalmacia won three group one races the right. same so year. So he would have beat it. No way, yeah. no way. So then of course we go to Canterbury two weeks later, we get the money, um, the, the bookies put on the track, Michael comes to Sydney to get the horse ready, to go the Sydney way going for, for a couple of weeks, um, does the track work, all the work's done at the back of the track, Put him down with some other, some other horses. We sent two other horses with him, Tumi, Luce and Budokan. They went up there with him, I don't remember their names. And, um, and so basically, um, they look at the track and it looks like he's doing that. He's getting beaten by these hackers on the track, you know. Mm. So the guys like, as I said before, Ray Hopkins, they've got track men, they're all watching. Yeah. They're saying, this has got no hope. Yeah. What they brought this up here for. We're going for a city class race for three year and we can take it for a maiden. Well, why wouldn't you go for the maiden? Why do you come to this race for? Mm. So, well, we're ready to go. And I've got, I've sent throughout Australia all the agents. And how confident were you? Were you really confident? It's going to win. Well, I've seen it's got to win, right? And what price they put it up at? Well, this is the good part about it. I'm expecting to get about twenty-five to one, right? In a dream, I'm dreaming in the night, thinking, oh, 25 to one, how beautiful it'll be. It'll be about 25s, I suppose it's going to be 25s into, um, I don't know, fours or something, you know, whatever. Anyway, I've got my bank, I've got some partners' bank money, the partners in the horse. Mm. They've had between them 10 grand on it, and I've had 70 grand on it, and there's 80,000 in commission to go around the whole of Australia. Is so we're thinking, you know, not, but that's what happens. The first, and I've got a football team from Broadmeadows. North Melbourne, Broadmeadows, a suburb of um, northern suburb of Melbourne, and the football team is put on a twenty-three guys are put on a bus, never been raced before, taken by taken by plane to Sydney, on a bus, given an envelope with instructions for each the two bookmakers, yep. and each given a thousand dollars in the in the envelope to put on the horses. Cash, back in. cash, yeah. 
right? Just keep back it. As part of the commission, yeah. Yeah. Possibly got. And what, got they, what was their commission for doing that? What were they? What did you tell them that you give them for helping out? I didn't. No, they just. They didn't. weren't told. They just thought they didn't know what was going on. Do what they told you. They, they, they didn't know what was going on. But look, I, I was very well known looking after. Sure, sure. So, so my rules, family rules, ask no questions, be told no lies. So if you ask a question in racing, you, my mother used to always give 10% of what she won. Right. That was a fortune. Yeah. For the tip. So if, they, if she wanted to go and find out about a horse, she would, she would go and go and find out horse. People would ring her and give her a tip, right? And she was going to take note. If she backed them and she had regard for them, she'd give them 10% of what she won. Mm. I'd follow suit. That mm. I just thought that was a rule. Mm. So if I won, a horse like getting closer, when our win was about 1.65 million at the time, I gave 165,000 away. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Everyone shared in the glory. Yeah. So getting closer wins the race, cool. I said, this is good, but guess what? He goes back to Melbourne, and we haven't hit Bland and McHugh. The two biggest bookmakers in Australia at the time were Bob Bland and Bruce McHugh. Yeah, they dug it. Because they're working in the state, they're working on, uh, on they're not working on Canterbury, yeah. they're not betting on those races. So after the first day, we take him back to Melbourne, and Henry says, the horse has improved. Yeah. He's improved. He's racing at Flemington, and they put up four to one, right? He's a better thing the second day, right? Yeah. So um, I said, this is an opportunity. So how am I going to set this one up? In between time, because of the big getting closer plunge, and they bet, and Ray Hopkins put up two hundred to one. It opened hundred to one, and went out to two hundred to one. And Shari, my wife. She was the sign. She had to go in the. For everyone to bet, everyone had their glasses on Shari at the track. Yeah. And when she bet, they all had to go and bet. Right. And they all also, I had letters prepared for all the rails bookmakers with a, with a, a note to them all saying, please put $500 on my horse for me. Yeah. They all handed a note. On credit, yeah. $500 yeah, yeah, yeah. for Mark Reed, yeah. written on my letterhead. And that ever happened before? Or no, it was the first thing they thought up this one, you know. <laughs> and how many of the bookies actually yeah, accepted they, the they, well, they, you know, they, they think it's an owner's bet, you know. Yeah. But then the money started to flow and of course, um, whatever. But Ray Hopman's bet, Shari, the first bet was 20000 or 100 yeah. $20,000 or 100 thanks to Ray, you know. <laughs> and Ray's going to bet, but, I mean, Shari, I'm Shari, I mean, I only asked him for 100 or I'm not quite sure if she might have asked him for 500 or mm. <laughs> But anyway, then the horse kept coming down. Mm. And of course, then on the way, the fill-up, the fill-up was the last part. The horse was actually returned seven to one. Right. Which was good because we, there was money also um, in interstate markets on, um, on the F-Speed as well, you know. So it was 200 to one into seven to one, was it? Yeah, officially. Yeah. But there was no seven to one. Yeah, I thought it was more like six to four or something. No, no. The, the, the final price, the final price, uh, on the way to see the, on the way to see the, that's why I was only seven to one, on the way to see the, um, the race, the horse was in about three to one on boards and five to two and seven to two, right? It was, the, on the way to see the race, <laughs> that's a good part. Robbie, 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 we all learn, we're young and we're aggressive and we're competitive and um, we're all smart asses, right? Mm. Yeah, we're smart asses. 
Robbie says to me, Mark, as a as a commission run out. As <laughs> a commission run out. And I, that was like a red rag to a ball, yeah. you know. And I turned around, I'm all on the way to see the race. And I said, what? Commission run out? I said, he said, he was five to one, all the rest was seven to two or something. And I said, yeah, Robbie, I'll have 10,000 on it. <laughs> and he said, oh, no, 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 no. He said, I'll bet you 5,000. I said, oh, yeah, no, no. The so no 5,000, five to one as they jumped. That was a, yeah. But I mean, don't think that was a fill up, but really, yeah. that was the that was a challenge had the commission run out. Yeah. Anyway, that was um, the great part about getting closer. The the sequel to getting closer is two two, two ways. The following week, turn me loose. The galloping partner for for getting closer is running around on the Wednesday meeting. Mm-hmm. Turn me loose is, you know, it's got a, it's um, it's got a rough chance. But because getting close is one, and I'm liquid, I say to the guys, just go and have 10,000 each way, get, uh, turn me loose. You know, a lazy 10,000 each way. And turn me loose is 16 to 1. And, and Bill Waterhouse is 16 to 1, right? And when the money comes up, Bill, because Bill, the way Bill thinks, he thinks this bloke is now, you know, he'd just be 10,000 each way, he'd just be throwing his money around now, now he's had a, a bit of luck last week, you know? So he bets a whole lot. Yeah. The ten grand each way. So he drops two hundred grand. Another two hundred grand drops in on the stable, mate. That's got we don't think much of, you know. Yeah. No plan at all in that one. Yeah. That, Just an yeah. off the thing bet. But then getting closer after that, all the picture, all the TV people want to come and and do a, a story. They come to the house. Of course, they see the, the beautiful house. Boomer, all the yeah. theatre. So boomer, boomerang's done up there, right? Yeah. All the theatre and everything else, and they and they look at the place. And, um, and they're taking pictures and they're selling helicopters around the place and everything else. And so um, I say to the film crew, Mary Della Hunty, she finished up being a, she was a journalist doing this show, Mary Della Hunty, and she did it for a, um, Channel 10, ran this show in opposition, to, in opposition to 60 Minutes, right? And they're doing all this whole profile. And I said, I'll give you some really good footage. I said, come to the race with, with the cameras next week because getting closer is run again, mm. and I'll show you live what happens, how we do this. Mm. But in the back of my mind, I'm sitting up, I'm sitting up Bruce McHugh and Bob Bland, because I knew when the, their egos are so big, yeah. they are the guys who don't knock anyone back for a bet. And with the cameras going behind them, they're not gonna knock me back. So I go up to Bob Bland, they're working together on the interstate rails, and I walk up and I say, first I go to, um, um, to Bob Bland, um, I say a hundred thousand each way. Getting closer. Getting, getting closer. closer. Running in Flemington. Flemington. Yeah. It's four to one. Four hundred thousand, a hundred thousand each way. Not a bad bit. I'm pretty convinced. What if he said sweet? He said yeah. No, no, no. Well, they looked at me. He looked at the cameras, and he couldn't go any worse. He said, Mark, I'll bet you half. <laughs> and then I go to Bruce. Hundred thousand each way, Bruce. He could have topped Bob. He would love to top Bob, but no, he was too smart for that. He said, I'll bet you the same as Bob. They both took me 50,000 each way. So I, I had the 100,000 each way of these guys, and I got another half a million. They won by, they three, won by three lengths. Uh, yeah. Getting one, two group one races that year, later yeah. in the year. Yeah. You know? But then, good, getting close was a very important horse because then he went to Queensland, he won the 100,000 in Queensland, the Doom 100,000, carrying 56 kilos, his favourite, won the 100,000, good stuff. But another, I had another horse. 
young horse who hadn't raced, three-year-old, called High Signal. And High Signal, Henry said to me, this horse, by a century, he's the best horse I've ever put a bridle on. Yeah. So we take him up to Queensland to educate him to go, we're going to go to Sydney again. We take him to Queensland to educate him and we put him in a trial after getting close to 100,000. We set up a trial over a thousand metres together out of the stalls and <laughs> this high school had never raced. It beats getting closer by two lengths pull, going half pace. Mm, mm. He's too good for getting closer, much better horse. So then we, I put him in a group three race first start. At, at, at group three race, I said, now I'll get money. I'm going to have the biggest bet of my life on this horse. And I put 300,000 on it. And what price was it? And he opened 10 to 1. And he started 6 to 4. That's the and one you, that started 6 to 4. And you, you got 300,000 on it from 10s all the way to 6 to 4. And I only averaged 13 to 4. I was filthy. And please say to 1. 1 by 6 weeks. <laughs> 1 by 6. Then came sorry, sorry for questioning you. Then he went straight to Melbourne, right, for the Coolmore <laughs> on Derby Day against Lloyd Williams County, right? And he was... We thought he was a champion, mm. which he was. And County was a great two-year-old Lloyd had, and he thought he was a champion. Mm. And they both opened two to one in the Kilmore. It was called, in those days, on day it wasn't called the Kilmore in those days. And basically, they were the best spinning three-year-olds around, right? And County drew the inside, and we drew the outside of the straight. And the margin was one length by six lengths. Yeah. I'd be County, we'd be County by one length, Six lengths of third. Yeah. And both of them, in the one race on Derby Day, both of them were back from two to one to six to four. Wow. Hell, that had to happen. Yeah. Two, six to four to two. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and then I made a big mistake, big mistake in my life in, in racing. And I've learned a lot since that. You learn from your mistakes. And I put him next start in the Lightning Stakes against River Ruff. River Ruff had won three, light, won three Lightnings in a row. Yeah. Best thousand meter horse, one of the best Australia. Won three lightnings in a row. We we ran at him on the second one, mm. right at his peak. Yeah. They drew. I backed him, high signal again against River Rock. How much happened in that day? No, I forget now. I don't I don't remember the, the losses. I remember the win. <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, I backed him. I'm really serious. And basically they go head and head, head and head from the 300 meter post to the winning post. Head and head, head and head, head and head, and River Ruff just got too much experience and beat him by a half head on the line. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Oh, but what a great run. Yeah. And and then then next up, High Signal, I take him to Sydney. He's threes on in the Royal Sovereign Stakes or one of those group two, three, uh, three old races, and he believes and runs last. Right. He only won one race after. Yeah. So I. I stuffed the horse up by putting like a fighter. You never put a champion fighter, young champion, against a seasoned old campaigner. Yeah. He broke his heart. Yes. River Ruff broke his heart. Yeah. Made him bleed, broke him. Yeah. Yeah. Stuffed up, I could have had champion. He yeah. was my champion. Yeah, right. And yeah. I stuffed him up. And so just to finish off the Sydney years, I mean, there's so much talk about, we'll keep things moving along. So um, when did you, you sold Boomerang? Do you remember what you sold it for? Yeah, we sold it to um, Warren Anderson, the big, Western Australian tycoon. Mm -hmm. uh, he was a, one of the, the great days of Bondi and all these guys. Warren, um, we spent a lot of time in, um, Shari and I spent a lot of time in Western Australia mm -hmm. um, with all the guys. Um, 
Um, and basically, uh, Warren had a house in um, Vaucluse on, on the harbour, but he came to our place for dinner on a Saturday night and he fell in love with the house. Yeah. So on the Monday morning, he rings me up, Warren rings me up, he's just the sort of guy he was. And he says, mate, I want to come around and see you. Can I come around and see you? Oh, sure, sure. So he comes around and see me, I'm thinking, I wonder what sort of business deal he's got for me yeah. here. Something's going to go, go on. Yeah. You know, he's had a, he's sitting in the dining room, Boomerang's dining room was just unbelievable, yeah. beautiful. All done in mahogany wood. Anyway, um, he comes he comes to the house and he says, mate, I'll cut to the, cut, cut to the chase. He says, I'm in love with their house and I've got to buy it. And I said, he said, how much do you take for the house? And I said, hmm, I said, six million, you know, good, deal done, finished. Okay. <laughs> he go. didn't care. I didn't realise how much money he had. He wouldn't care. He wouldn't care. Said eight during he wouldn't care. Yeah. And, uh, and I'd been, and before that, and before, um, after that, he took, he took me to the, um, took me to his um, farm. And he owned that farm in Penrith, a famous farm in Penrith. And he built this farm there. I'd never seen the like of anywhere in the world. I've seen all the great stud farms around the world. And in Penrith, where Warren Anderson built that farm, mm. is the best. Uh, best. It's not the one that Daly have now, is it by chance? No, in Penrith, this is. Yeah, don't Daly or sort of Hawkesbury Penrith area, Daly. No, nah, this is in right near the Penrith Golf Course, okay. you know. Yeah. And it's a most beautiful place. And he built. It's a very famous place because it was um, Governor MacArthur's historical first dwelling in, in, in Sydney history, you know, in the old history of Sydney. And um, anyway, I said, and he built, it was all beautiful Gosford sandstone and the slate all had slate roofs. He went and bought some monasteries in France just to get the roofs. So he bought the roofs out to put right. on his farmhouses. Right? Yeah. This is true. Yeah. This is Warren. He's the biggest spend I've ever seen. This yeah. guy, Warren Anderson, was a, wow, flamboyant. <laughs> Not out there publicly, he's very, he's reclusive. Mm. But internally, he had the best bird collection in the world. He had this fence. Oh, I, I fell in love. I said, but here's the deal, Warren. If you came and saw me before, the, before, I would have happily swapped you. You could have bought the house, and I moved into the into the manager's house on your farm. Yeah, happy. yeah. You know, anyway, that much, yeah. so that that's the um, the boomerang story. The boomerang story. And so the so the Sydney years sort of came to an end in the mid nineties when you decided to go to up to Darwin. No, yeah. no, Sydney. First of all, then I retired. Right. I retired to go back to Melbourne to be a horse trainer. Right. Right. Eighty six. So eighty six, you gave away bookmaking. Yeah. Yeah. I retired, and I went back to Melbourne. To retired be a horse on top. Retired with a big bank, and I wanted to be a horse trainer. Yeah. I was sick of bookmaking. But did, did you retire because you ran out of money? You lost all your money. Again no, 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 I just made. It. I just sold yeah. it out. Yeah, so you're well cashed up. Well, flying, yeah. yeah. Flying, yeah. So basically, we came back to Melbourne. I bought a house, a big house in Melbourne, um, renovated that, and basically then um, the kids are, and the white show said to me, we can't stand this weather. Mm. We want to go back to Melbourne, back to Sydney. Sydney yeah. So I only last 18 months in, in, in um, or two years in Melbourne, and I went back to bookmaking for the last eight months in Melbourne, and um, it shows you how the racing game was. Right back to back to my, my old, all my old clients were still there. They hadn't forgotten me. I had been away for six years, and basically there were punters in Melbourne were iconic. We yeah. had a punter in Melbourne. I mean, people don't ever heard of this guy. This generation, we had the grand, the greatest, loveliest guy and the biggest punter I've ever seen. 
for volume ever in Australia. And his name was Michael Pitt. Uh-huh. Um, Jewish guy, um, magnificent history of what he did for his community. He was a head of deputies for the Jewish community in, in Melbourne here, but he loved to bet and he only did his own betting. He didn't ever use an agent. He always put his own money on and he used to back five a race. Right. right? He ran up and down and put his own money on. When I went back there to Sydney, he was 85. He lost the sight of one eye. He's only a little guy. He's only about five foot two or five foot three. And, you know, he wasn't as mobile as, as I knew him back then. So I said to Michael, Michael, you, I'll give you a roll of the board. The Melbourne people hadn't heard of roll the board. It was a Sydney thing, roll the board, next price up. Yeah. It was a Sydney thing. So I brought that one back, I learned, and I said to Michael, don't have to move anywhere else. Wherever you want to back, you've got to roll the board. But he backed back five the race. Yeah. Right? And he followed the money. Whatever was back, he'd jump on board, right? So I don't think he ever won. But he said he, he did, because when he did have winnings back in the 40s, right? When he was big, in fact, he was big from the 40s on. Yeah. He kept every rails bookmaker in Melbourne going for, for four decades. Yeah, what was his right? business? His business was he was the biggest manufacturer of stockings in Australia. Ladies stockings. Yeah. Ladies stockings. Yeah. And girls don't wear stockings anymore, but when we were young, all girls always wear stockings. Yeah. And it used to be quite titillating yeah. watching a woman put her stockings on. <laughs> because one of the things you'd always wait for is for her to put her thumb through the stockings <laughs> and then she'd burst out in a whole range of profanities about oh, yeah, putting a thumb through those stockings, you know. I used to love when that used to happen. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? Another pair of stockings from Michael Soul. Oh, yeah. And more money. <laughs> so basically, Michael was 85, and, and, and with his great, his great mate, Wolfie Fink, was his mm. great mate. They were, he was 83. They were still losing, going to the races themselves, putting their own money on, mm. and on a bad day, they could lose half a million dollars. Mm. Mm. <laughs> that was a different economy of what yep. racing was. Yeah, yeah. Back then, half me back then. Yeah, yeah, a lot of money. Yeah. 85. Yeah, yeah. They didn't have agents, nothing, just themselves. They put the money on. They were up and down the rails, up and down. Yeah. Such an exciting place, you can't believe it. Yeah. So you, and then Sharon wanted you guys to go back to Sydney. Back to Sydney, yeah. and we went and um, we had, we were lucky, we went back to Sydney, we looked around for a house, and we couldn't find the house we wanted. But uh, John Hemmings and Mary Bale, mm. great mates of ours, uh, eventually, they had, John had built a house for Justin. Justin was still at school at Scotts. My kids went to Scotts. And we all, and they had a beautiful estate in Walkers on the harbour. Mm, the Hermitage. Hermitage, yeah. And they built a house for, for when he left school for, for their son, Justin. And in the meantime, Justin was still at school. So John said, I need someone to go and live in the house. So do you want to lease the house? And the house was a, a sandstone and marble palace mm. with a tennis court on the harbour. And when we moved in there, and we became very close friends with Mary Vale and John, were beautiful people. Mm. And we used to play tennis together twice a week on the tennis court. And we had a lot of fun. Mm. And we never moved. And I said to John, this is thing. I said to John, John, I need to get into the front, into the housing market in Sydney because it's dropped down a low now and I can get in 
and I'm going to buy a house. He said, no, 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 you can't buy another house. You've got to stay here. No, no, no. I said, I'm going to have to buy another house to get in the market. Look, I said, he said, I'll do it. I'll do you a deal. He said, from now on, you pay 33% of the, of the rent you used, to, you used to pay. And you can stay. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even negotiate. Yeah. You know? That's how close we were. We, were, we had a ball together. Yeah. You know? yeah. So Sydney was a lot of fun. We went back there. And then, of course, bookmaking was finished, in my view. Yes. The phones came in. I negotiated in Melbourne on behalf of the bookmakers here the deal of getting phones on the track. Yep. But they were less than, um, they, 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 they were, the, the, the VRC lives at the Garden Path. The same thing happened in Sydney. They weren't going to really, they said they were wanting the phones. They didn't want the phones at all. Mm. They were, all they were worried about what, what the TAB was doing. That's all they were worried about, right? So basically, um, then they gave you a phone, one phone each, and then you had to wait for 20 seconds to get, you know, the, that was all on purpose, mm. to, to, so people wouldn't wait, you know, punters want instant action. And then you had to, the minimum bet was $200. This was all rubbish. Mm. So during the early 90s, I, um, I decided that this game was finished. Mm -hmm. Turnover was shot to pieces, no one was holding any money. I'd work on, I was a leading bookmaker, I, I moved over to locals because I had a problem in the interstate on London. The punters wouldn't bet, Sydney punters, you know, they're like, you know, you're a Sydney punter. Sydney punters used to always, they got, they got brought up on this thing where they, they're very, they're very, they don't believe in a fair game, they believe everything's fixed or mm. could be fixed. So, so when they see a bookie go a top price, it doesn't incentivize them to bet. Mm. They go the other way. Mm. So when I used to go to the best price, I couldn't win. Mm. I couldn't get a bet. Mm. So at the finish on the interstate, I was holding, Bruce McHugh was holding five times more than me mm. per year. Five mm. times. Mm. We had stands next to each other, mm. the same clients, right? But they weren't bet with me. Bruce was pretty clever. Bruce said, Bruce said, whatever deal Mark Reed offers you, I'll match. But he said, but at the same time, you said, um, I don't know why you want to bet with Mark, you're not going to beat him. He knows everything's going on. Mm. You know, that's what they wanted to hear, mm. you know. So then um, Harry Barrett came along, and Bruce retired, of course, and Harry Barrett came along, and I used to bet with Harry, and bet with, you know, I became a punning bookmaker on the other side. I had to punt. Couldn't get any turnover for bookmaking. Then I said, oh, well, I'll move, to the, I'll move to the locals. Maybe they'll treat me differently than the locals. So I went to the locals, and I, I was a top holder on the locals, but I only held 25 million for the year, mm. you know. So on the interstate, Harry Barrett, um, he was the first guy ever to hold 100 million on the on the interstate for a year. Yeah. For a year. Yeah. So I'm I'm on. He's holding four times what I am. Yeah. I'm yeah. on. I'm the top bookmaker on the locals. Yeah. Right? Wasn't working. So then an opportunity came along to go to. Um, Ananda Krishnan, there's a very famous Malaysian guy um, who, big, you know, he's the Kerry Packer in Malaysia. He built the Twin Towers, oh, yeah. um, he built um, a multimedia empire in, um, in Asia mm -hmm. uh, from Kuala Lumpur, the most sophisticated multimedia facility in the world outside of America back in the early, early 90s. He had a footprint, satellite footprint through the whole of India, the whole of um, South of Asia, east coast of Asia, and the whole of Australia. And he wanted to buy William Hill. Right. And then he wanted me to go out and show you, go across to England, and I was going to be CEO of William Hill. Mm. That was the plan. 
So what happens? This is typical of what you dealt with in that period. Imagine this. He goes and offers the asking price of William Hill, and they knock him back. Hmm. They knock him back because he's an Asian. Yeah. And they say, no, it's typical English. They said, no, no, you're not, you know, you've got to pay a premium. Yeah. This is a prize for English people, and here's another prize. We had this, I, we had the same, we had the same, um, exactly the same experience, Jeff Murphy and I, we went to buy a stallion for our farm. Jeff Murphy, the trainer, and I were, were partners in a syndicate, and we went to England to buy a stand. We liked the stand, we offered the stand the money, and they said, no, 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 you're Australian, you've got to pay extra. Yeah. So they didn't buy a stand. Anyway, they didn't buy it. So what we came up with an idea, let's get, we can make um, licensing in Australia. I'm going to approach the, cap, the territories and get a jurisdiction to embrace our business model for betting through the whole of Asia on mm -hmm. satellite. Mm -hmm. It wasn't the internet, it hadn't been thought of at that time. We're thinking about satellite television and betting via, via television. Right? Mm. So what happens then is that um, we get a license and we've put two years of writing out all the preparatory regulations in with the help of the uh, ACT government, mm -hmm. Labor government, um, and it all goes through. They grant us a 25-year license. Mm -hmm. Tanjong is there. Tanjong is Amanda's company. It's it's a big. It built Tanjong's a multifaceted company in petroleum and and built uh, and built the twin towers in mm. KL. Um, massive company. Um, you know, Amanda's much richer than Kerry Packer. Mm -hmm. Different different scale. And um, I think I think Amanda still owns. Maybe Sydney knows that these days. It's a, mm -hmm. No one knows much about it. He's very quiet guy. Mm. Um, and so our plan had all been done, all done. And, wow, this is going to be the greatest opportunity. This is this is the biggest thing in my life. You know, what happens? They have a they have a problem with the local bookies in Canberra. Mm. The local bookies in Canberra don't like the idea of an outsider coming in stealing their lunch. Mm. Hey, we're not going to steal your lunch. No. We're not going to take any bets from anyone in the ACT. Yeah. We don't want any trap with the ACT. It's all about everywhere else, right? So that's our, that's our part of the, the contract. Um, no, not satisfied with that. So Kate Kernell, she's for the Liberal Party. No wonder I hate the Liberal Party. <laughs> she comes in and she says, oh, here's a way of getting in the votes. So she says, if we get power, we're going to stop these people from getting this license. Mm. We're going to turn over legislation, mm. which she did. She got power, she turned on legislation. So what happened to us? Tanjong said, oh, this is all too hard, we're yeah. out. Yeah, right. So what do I do? I go to, I go to, I go to Darwin yeah. with exactly the same business plan. Everything's the same. The regulations, all we prepared in the ACT, are exactly the same in Northern Territory. Mm. Nothing's changed. Mm. All of it was done, put it on the, put it on the uh, table for Barry Calder, the treasurer. So did you approach the Northern Territory? Yeah, I'm with it. Yeah, right. So they, there was no, because obviously everyone, now there's so many cookies up there, but you were the first one to go up there and say, hey, do you want to do? They had, um, Terry Norse was in Alice Springs. Yeah. He was already trained, very great entrepreneur. Terry, one of the best um, entrepreneurs you'd ever meet, but a real territorian. Mm. And we had another guy being on sports, we used to bet, um, but just by phone on sports, um, and he operated out of, out of Darwin. And the, the, the government wanted me to buy him out because he was a problem. Mm. He was always in trouble, 
and it was a, a problem for them. So they said, you come to us, you can't be here, and maybe the best idea if you, you buy out of your business. Mm. But when I did do deals, I'm not, I'm not touching this. Yeah. Know? So basically, we built the Northern Territory. The Northern Territory, we, we got off the plane, uh, 12 of us got off the plane. We all carried um, PCs with us on the plane, landed in um, um, Darwin. So the first day of operation, we were all on the phones. We had got an office, they can't supply us. All the promises were not there, the club, mm. the race club. So they put us in the bar. <laughs> we sat in the corner of the bar on the dance floor, right? And that's where we transacted from. Mm. And they said, well, where are you? And I, and I said, we're not going to even work on the load up here. That, I don't want to get, I don't want to get on the toes of the local bookmakers. Yeah. So I don't, that's their business. I'm not going to even go there. Mm. I never operated on the local, on the local races, except for Cup Day. Mm. So they invited me to work on Cup Day for PR reasons. Yeah. Yeah, besides that, I left all that, mm. that, that, that business to them. So we get, we get the, um, we get the up there, and then they haven't got an office. They've got no money. The race club's got no money. That's why they got us up there, because they're going to get the commission from our, own be our betting. So they're getting 10% from, from the turnover of any bidding we do. That's a fortune to them. Mm. So then they got no money to build us a facility to accommodate us. So I had to fund that. So I put in one and a half million to build a, an annex to the, the stand, beautiful office, mm. which, which butted into the into the members and also on, on two floors. Mm. That was our office. That was the start. Yeah, it started. Started, and, um, and then we were driven by Cinebet in Alice Springs, Terry Laws yep. and ourselves. And it wasn't only I that started the industry, but Terry, Terry um, he, he was a great entrepreneur and he was um, you know, very pushing, not, not so much racing, but pushing sports betting. Yes. That was his big yeah, deal. So this is like 1995, roughly. This is 1995, 96. Yeah. 90, and then 99, 2000, we went public. Yeah. Right? So and you we went public on the ASX, did you? Yeah. 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 And then basically, then we started, you know, we came to that period where we started to deal in Asia. We started to look for opportunities to grow our business offshore. Uh, yes, yeah, so you listed on the ASX. Yeah, that, it, was, it, that was what, 99 or something like that? 99, yeah. 99 in the year, close to 2000. And, and do, um, you, do you think the overall IAS business was just slightly ahead of its time? It was, it definitely. Um, the, vision, the vision was there and I sold the vision. And of course, the vision was, was such, and I was right, that people invested and they overrated the stock, um, really, you mm. know. Um, and basically, um, expectations were so high, but we were the, the as I said, as what happened, the internet was coming, mm. but it didn't arrive until six years later, really. Yeah. yeah. And then the volume started to take off in the two thousand and five period, two thousand six mm. period. So before that, it was a real struggle for me to to keep the funding up for the internet projects because yes. my board, being a public company were saying, where's our return on these investments, mm. you know? And so you, raised, you had to raise money on a few occasions, did you, from investors to keep things going? Uh, no, no, we never raised any money. We, um, we, we, that was our problem. We didn't raise enough money in the first place. Yes, to give so some scale, we, yeah. we held on, we held on, we didn't, we were naive. Mm -hmm. We were naive and we only, when the time came, we only put up 10% of the stock in yeah. the float. Yes. Um, and then basically, because of the demand, we extended that to, um, I think, 15 or, 
I think it was 15% or 20% maybe, I think it was 15% of the stock. Mm. We put out some more because we, people were going to be disappointed. So, so we, didn't, um, we didn't raise enough money to make um, the acquisitions we could have, mm. we could have made, right? Mm. So we had to grow organically and we didn't go to the market again because our share price sort of tanked mm. on the back of, um, um, of our getting kicked out of America sort of thing. And a lot of the a lot of the vision that I had, that then the pundits start to say, the bloke, this whole story doesn't make any sense. But it did, of course, mm. clearly. Mm. But people weren't really. We were, as you said, we were, in my, well, in retrospect, we were before before our time. Yeah, before you know? our time. Yeah. You know, and then once you get a um, um, a situation where you get that stage, then you, when you're in a market situation on the exchange. You have to grow every year. You have mm. to grow. You have to keep growing. Yes. Yeah, it's all about growth. But the biggest problem we had was that time, once we became public and our scale started to grow, and it did grow because I bought in the money from Asia. So mm. we got a $500 million injection in turnover. That doubled. That was bigger than our turnover on the horse racing. Yeah. Right? So basically, um, we got all this profile going and we had this growth. And then the tab started to get very tab cord and tab limited, went crazy and applied all sort of cons- all sorts of constraints mm. on our business. And the treasurers in the other states were happy to comply. Mm. They were really in, you know, whatever tab core and tab limited told them to do, they did mm. to make things right. So for example, Sky Channel sold the business I was using to um, promote our business through through Kerry Packer's Sky Channel, Kerry sold the business to Tabcorp. Mm. So what's the first thing Sky Channel do? No more business, you, you, we're barring you from using Sky Channel. Mm. Right, so what do the other states do? We're barring all advertising. So we weren't allowed to advertise. Yes, yes. So what is- Isn't that amazing in today's world? Well, yeah, there's so what, much gambling what, advertising everywhere. Back when you were doing, you weren't allowed to advertise at all. At all, they stopped. Yeah. We were advertising before that because we were using media like Sky, satellite television, satellite technology to do it, and we're the only ones who had it. And Tabcorp were trying to catch up um, and Tab Limited with their screen presentations. Yes. But our screen presentations were way ahead of theirs. Yeah. I actually, what the hell? I got those screen presentations. I went to England and saw how SIS which is a conglomerate business of all the bookmaking co- big bookmaking companies in England to promote their product on screens. Yeah. And I copied their whole, you know, great, when I invent, got this deal going with Packer, they said, wow, how did you think of this? Well, I did was copy what they did in England. Yeah. Right? And the presentations were way beyond whatever Tabcore or Tabbimmerin had. And they tried to copy it, but they made failures, as they always had in IT. Those companies have been pathetic in their, I don't know why they're so bad at IT, mm. but that's a, that's a, that's a storyline if you want to read it, you know? Mm. And they've been outplayed. Once it became the, the digital age, clearly they've been outplayed by Sportsbet, yep. Labrokes, they've all outplayed them, you know? It's a Sportsbet that's wildly successful now. IAS played a big part in the foundation of that, didn't it? Because was it 2009 that Sportsbet, or Paddy Power, which is now Flutter, yeah acquired basically all of IAS bet. They bought us and all the intellectual property, yep. even my rating systems, and they still use them. Yep. They use them in England, 
they developed them further. Mm. The same people who the same people who um, who were involved in the um, uh, the intellectual property development. Some some of them are in their eighties now. Mm. One guy especially. He's mm. still working for them. Mm. Wow. Right. Yeah. So I'm saying that um, you know um, people like the um, chief of trading. He was my best recruit. Um, chief of trading, chief of um, all the trading at Sportsbet, he still that holds that position because he's so good at it. Yeah. And he was my star recruiter at IAS. He used to work at my right hand side at Wadi Mallee University. He came straight out of university, he was still at uni when he came to work for me. Mm. And he is, um, he's a gun operator. Mm. He was then, and he'd be, be, be better now. But they really are good at marketing, and of course, they took full leverage of the advertising because. Paddy Power were the guns in advertising in the UK. All those sort of quirky ads they do, yes. they work. Yeah. And um, of course, we weren't allowed to advertise. If we were allowed to advertise, I would have had the same growth as we had the day that we got cut out completely by the power of the, um, the tab. The tab. Yeah. Now, this is important to understand, and these are the facts, that between 1994, which was privatization of TAB, and 2005, 10-year period, right, Wagering in Australia only grew eight percent over that ten-year period. It's tiny, isn't it? Well, Nothing, yeah. because they took control of the agenda. Yep. They didn't teach them the market anything. They didn't educate the market. They didn't. They didn't um, promote the business. And the race clubs were just in love with them, you know. And the race clubs were still in love with it. You know, right now what we've got here is an obscene situation currently, where the race clubs are gripping in money. Gripping in money. So this is talking about now. Now, because guess what? Not because of Tabcor, because of the bookmaking industry, which mm. I told them back then, they need competition in the marketplace, and that will grow the marketplace. It'll it'll bring up the lost generations. Tabcor and Tab Limited lost a whole generation mm. of punters. And I think the interesting point is is that Sportsbet and some of the other bookies have brought that generation back, isn't it? It's not like Sportsbet have picked up punters off the tab, what sports better done is actually brought punters into the game. People who didn't know there were punters and then have made, been made to realise by sports bets advertising and stuff that actually they love betting and love the entertainment of it and brought them back into the it's game. It's a 20 something demographic. Yeah. It's like our demographic. When you had a father or someone in your family who introduced you to racing, we all became just passed on, passed on, passed on. Families, generation after generation, generation, fill all those all the clients I had in the in the um, 70s and 80s. Then all of a sudden, and then by the time we got to the 90s, Tabcor, the privatisation of the TABs, mm. that all finished. Yeah. Because they had a monopoly mm. and they acted like they were monopolists too. Mm. They just lay on their back, did nothing, and the race club executives lay back some of those people who got a lot to answer for, who were head of Australian racing. They just sat back and took took the champagne, took the black label scotch, and just sat back. Mm. and just believe what they wanted to believe. And they killed the game, almost killed it off. Mm. But who saved the industry? The bookies, which is ironic not, too. Not for Landys, not yeah. anyone else, but the bookies in the competition saved them. Yeah. Now the problem is, now, is that there's an overkill. Yeah. That once you <laughs> don't look after your client properly, mm-hmm. there's a certain level of how far you, you can deal with your client. So who's the client, the punter? Or the, the punter business? is the client. Yeah, and you don't the think punter, the punter's getting well looked after? No. <laughs> well, I'll put it this way. The punter, when I operated, 
my margins, the biggest competitor I had was um, Sportsbet in my time. They were my biggest competitor. Um, we were turning out about one and a half billion when I sold, and and um, um, Sportsbet trips were turning about 700 million. So our business doubled the size of, um, of Sportsbet. Um, then the biggest competitor to us was Sporting Bet, who I think were bought out by William Hill mm. some years later. Um, but our margins were double, double margins than Sportsbet. Mm. Well, how they ever made a profit, I don't know. I don't know they ever made a profit because their margins were not were not above the line. Uh, were not big enough to pay out the overheads, right? But now, um, so basically, even then, but the margins now, the companies and the, and the whole, um, the company now, wins from its clients double what I took from the clients. Yes. Not, not 20% yeah. more, not 50% more, Yeah, so you were, double. What, you were earning about 7 or 8%. We right? were 7, 7 or 3, 3. And now they're like 15, 7 So you, you think that's, they're gouging too much out of the punter, do you? Oh, it's, it's a, look, it's not the book, all the bookmakers are, is a, a middleman yes. between government and the racing industry. Both, they've all got their snouts in the trough, mm. right? And they've seen it oblivious. And when I had a, a big um, dispute with Peter Valandis, Peter Valandis called all us together at the time back before I sold the business. And he said to Tabcor in a, at a, in a public forum, he said, the punters don't care what you're charging. Mm. Why don't you guys get in there and raise the raise the take, and then give it back to us? Mm. Right? But hasn't he been proven somewhat correct in the sense that turnovers continues to grow really strongly? The turnovers it's... growing on the back of the education, the marketing, mm -hmm. the advertising. I mean, you know, um, Sportsbet. They've been spending more than a hundred million a year mm. on marketing advertising for about six years now. Who would ever thought, you know, when you say these figures to other people in other industries, oh, what's their budget for, for what's what's their budget for um, advertising? Mm. Oh, a lazy hundred million. Mm. I think it was 140 last year. <laughs> no one was making a hundred million, it was 140 last year. Yeah. Yeah. Well I know six or seven years ago I looked at another. That's money we didn't spend. Yeah. But you know, then they got these product fees from product fees, and these um, state, these other states have put their nose in the trough as well. So all of a sudden, they've got to pass those costs on. So who gets hit? That means they've got to main to to pay all this money, these charges. They've got to maintain these ridiculous margins. Yes. Right. And the only way they can maintain those margins is by doing a cutting everyone who may look like winning out of the question. Yeah. So the formula now is is got to the stage where you know it's a I'd be ashamed. In many ways, you cannot be having an account with a bookmaker today unless you're a loser. Yeah. Correct. Well, not absolutely. You protected in racing because of the minimum bet limits, but also oh, yeah, everything. The minimum bet limit means you can. There's ways and means around that one, and yeah. they, they can. And basically, the minimum bet what is it? Two how much? Was it two thousand? What is it? One thousand two thousand. One thousand two thousand. <laughs> this is two thousand twenty-three. Wouldn't have suited your betting when you were back in the eighties and nineties. You 70s, can't. 80s and 90s. You can't go to lunch in Sydney. In Sydney, you can't go to lunch, right? It's two hundred dollars for food, 
300 for one, you've got a partner, it's a thousand bucks. Yeah. So I agree, it should be, yeah. Well, I mean, it's not, that's not the point. The point is the taxes are too high mm. and they're just pure, um, and the punter is getting the neck. The punter is gouged. Now, they're not interested in the punter. They, they, they just think the punter, they just think we can rehearse the punter and let's go and do it more. And, and the largesse of these race clubs now, they're on trips overseas, they go through this class, they stay in, they stay in suites in five-star, six-star hotels. Just like you used to in the, in the 70s and 80s. Yeah, but all the rock star. Yeah, and it was your own money. It was my own money, that's <laughs> fine, you know. Yeah. <laughs> rock stars live that way, right? But now, you know, you know, these guys are not doing anything except sitting in their positions, holding on to their positions. The most amazing thing about race clubs over all the period, I've never seen, they always complain about how, how much duty they give and how much time they give and how they're doing always for free and bona fide, you know, or they're such a contributor. But they never ever resign. Yeah. There's only one way they'll leave a, the race club committee. Yeah. And so many guys get on these committees, it's always been the way. And they're so full of ideas, so full of telling the members of the club how they're going to change things. Well, what happens when they get there? They join the club, yeah. you know. So basically, um, this is one of the, this is my biggest disappointment. But on the other hand, you look at Hong Kong. The total focus of the Hong Kong Rocket Club is the, the customer. Yeah. Your customer in any business has to be your focus. And since you sold ISB, you've been very active in Hong Kong. It's been your, your sort of your passion. I don't body. even don't even read the papers on Australia. So I don't even know what yes. horse racing, yeah. right? Because basically. It's an overkill, too much product, um, and it's, it's, um, they're trained, they're, you know, there's been an education process delivered by TAB originally, but now fostered by the other, by the, the bookmaking companies, because they have to, to get the volume. Um, it's a volume game, um, and it's about um, just training the, the better to treat wagering like gaming. Mm. So wagering by definition, means you have to have an informed decision and then you wager on the back of your informed decision on the outcome of an event. Gaming, you sit in front of a machine and you pull the lever and hope three, three zeros come up or whatever, you know? So they turn racing in this, racing and sports being has been changed in a similar, yes. has been turned into a similar sort of thing. Yeah. So basically, um, and racing is still the big game. Mm. Sports betting has its place, but it still hasn't grown much. No. Racing is still, I believe, is still may represent seventy-five percent of the turnover of the bookmaking companies. Right? Yeah, I think it is at least right. that. Yeah. Okay. Even more, maybe. So this has created great interest in racing. This promotes it goes down into people then being introduced, and they go in to buy horses. They um, they go into syndicates. You know, they they own a they own a hair in the tail of a horse. But that's good fun. Mm. That's a good idea. Spread your risk. Um, and it creates this great big volume, and who can feed off that? The horsemen. The ho I saw the horsemen ruin American racing. Because mm -hmm. the horsemen, there's the trainers and the breeders, came in there and said, let's rip off the punters, this happened to America in the late 80s and 90s, and the American racing turnover halved, halved in the space of uh, 12 years. Mm. And you worry about that happening here, do you? It'll happen. Yeah. It'll happen because eventually they're going to come down and they're creating a situation of problem gambling. Hello? 
if everyone loses all the time, if there are no winners, what's your hope? If, it, if winners aren't allowed to win, what is your hope? Mm. Okay, and you can, you can, if you get, there can be losers, that's fine. There can be losers, but there must be an avenue to win. Mm -hmm. If that's denied you, you're creating a, a situation of dealing with problem gambles only. Mm, I agree with that, yeah. Right? So we have to come up with a much, look, we have to come up with a situation and try to copy what they did, in, or everything they do up in Hong Kong looks to be pretty good. They have, why in some of all this money, instead of going in this largesse living style that these race clubs have, and the stupid prize money they're offering and all these things they're offering, and these ridiculous, um, absolutely obscene fees for stadiums, who are supposed to be serving the mayors, you know, you know, 16 year old mayors that are serving 240 mayors a season. Well, guess what? There's only 90 days in a season, yeah. right? So they're serving three a day, but there's no artificial insemination. I mean, oh, fuck. They, they hung a bloke out the drive called Bruce McHugh, yeah. who saw the light, brought a high court case, and said we've got to, you know, we've got to have a situation where we can control the cost of horses and anything that will happen through introducing some degree of artificial insemination. Yeah. There, they hung him to drive. They yeah. went after him. Yeah. He, they, Bruce, the bookmaker. Yeah, 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 He gave great service. I think he was for 15 years or longer. Was a uh, was a chairman of STC, and he, you know he was sort of a guy, Bruce. He and I had our run-ins, but professional. But we had great respect for one another. He was a a bookmaker is more than just being a form analyst or being a, a logistics guy like me. Yeah. The most important thing, as we all know about bookmaking, is how good a marketer you are. Yes. And how good you are with your clients. Yeah. Well, I tell you what. Bruce left me way behind. I thought I was pretty good with my class because I'd, I'd had to throw parties and I'd give them good wine. I'd bring them to my place to entertain them. But Bruce, he was always smiling at them. He was always, he, he didn't get angry with anybody. He looked after them as good clients. And then he gave his time. He loved racing. He bred horses. He, he, he had big, some beautiful farms. And he then went out and he saw what should be done. Mm. And they're hanging out the drive. Yeah, yeah. No one spoke to him in the industry for. They don't yeah, spoke to him. I remember that happening. Yeah. No. Oh, it was disgraceful. Yeah. Anyway, we have to um, we have to move on, and basically they have to look at be centric on the customer being the punter. The punter funds everything, but you you put you know I mean, it's just sad to see what goes on, and there's no hope of you winning. I mean. If you're betting, if you're really in today's world and you're only betting to win what buys you lunch, a nice lunch at a flash restaurant, hmm. well, you know, I don't know about, um, um, that's a different era than where we lived in where the taxi driver had the $100 bet and backed a winner and won 500, which was, guess what? 500 represented um, one sixteenth of the average wage of, a, of an Australian. Yeah. So we could talk forever, but we probably should start to wrap up. Um, very insightful. Great to hear quite a bit of your story. Um, could have, there's a lot more to it, but there's only so much time we can do it for. So to finish, what, what's some advice that you give to someone who wants to make it in the game, the great game, whether they want to make it as a bookie or a punter or, or any other um, participant in, in the wagering industry, what, what would be your, 
your basic advice to them to, to have the distinguished sort of exciting career and, and very fruitful career that you've had what, what's your well it's hard work it's it really is hard work you, you know you've got to work it's you cannot be a playboy and be a, a professional gambler mm-hmm. or even be a, a social gambler who wants to win you've got to you, you're competing and and only um, many are called but few are chosen yeah. So in my days in, in racing, in my bookmaking days, I had a steady 20% of my client base at one. Mm-hmm. Right? I had a more profile, I knew exactly where they were, what they won. So, um, if you could offer some advice to punters, bookies, people who want to try and make it in the great game, what, what would that be? Do the work. You've got to do the work. There's no substitute for doing that. Yeah. Second thing is understand the pace of racing that winners win because of conditions of the race. That is, mm-hmm. you've got to back horses that are suited by fast pace or slow pace. So you need to have a good understanding of your maps and good understanding of um, try and read what is going to be the pace of the race. Um, and then you've got to have consistency in your betting. You've got to have a plan. Mm. You can't chase. That's the worst thing. Yeah. I've seen five decades of high rolls and really good people who ran a lot of money lose a lot because they want to chase. Mm. Even the biggest punters mm. and, the, and the longest and smartest are chasers. Most people are, you can't chase. And uh, they're the simple rules of the, um, of the game. And also, when you do your form, always try and get someone else you respect, their opinion as well, and therefore go and review by exception. Yeah. That when they disagree with you, go and look at the races where the horses which you disagree on and review those horses. Yeah, perfect. All right, wonderful. Well, thank you very much for your time. And um, good to see you in a great, great place in the world. It's, it's really beautiful. It's one of the most beautiful days of the year, I'd say. So. Yeah. Th- thanks for having to, us to your sanctuary. It's, uh, it's very cool. That's cool. Good, good um, luck on Hong Kong tomorrow night. Is it tomorrow night? Yeah. And I love talking about the old days, but the new days are still fun too. Yeah, awesome. All right. Too fun. Great chat, great time. Thank, Thank you. you. Come on.